Hey guys, this is Colin from Blackjack Apprenticeship, and I am joined with Richard Munchkin, who is a member of the Blackjack Hall of Fame. He co-hosts the show Gambling with an Edge, and I'm sure you guys know who he is. Thanks so much for joining me, Richard. Oh yeah, happy to, happy to be here. So you remember we did a podcast, it was eight years ago, and I came wow. over to your house. Yeah, yeah. And, no, I uh, remember it well. I didn't realize it's been that long. Wow. Yeah, I, I didn't either, but I listened back to the conversation, and one of the things that really stood out to me is how much I've actually learned since then about Advantage Play, because I've just primarily been a card counter, but I really think I owe Gambling with an Edge a lot to what I've learned over the years, so I wanted to thank you for the entire Advantage Play community for what you guys have done with that show, so thank you for that. Oh, thanks. Uh, that's that's nice to hear. Uh, it's It's good, you know, because you put it out there, and it it's it's kind of just like sending it off into a void and and you never really know um but uh, but occasionally i do get uh, an email or something from somebody who says you know that uh gambling with an edge has, has made them a lot of money or whatever and so i i'm really happy to hear that because you know that's that's what makes it worth doing yeah awesome i mean it's very often a part of uh forum discussion fodder it's even a you know there's like a sub thread of our forum that's about gambling with an edge episodes where people can you know it, it sparks conversation so it's been meaningful to i know a lot of advantage players but uh moving on do you remember you remember the story you told we did a party it feels like a lifetime ago but it was actually just last fall, we did a little bit of a get-together party uh, for for some advantage players and blackjack apprenticeship people, and you told a story there, and it's been requested that you retell that story for our audience. Would you be willing to do that? Yeah, sure, sure. Um, you know, it's, it's really about how I got started with card counting, and um, uh, what happened was I uh, grew up outside Chicago, and I went to college in Chicago, and I made my way through college playing backgammon and poker. And I, back then, backgammon was really popular. And it was like every bar you went to had backgammon tables in them. And many of these would hold local tournaments. And so I would play in a lot of these tournaments. And I was playing in one. And a dentist that I knew said he had just come back from Las Vegas and that, you know, he made money at blackjack and, and he had a way of making money at blackjack. Now I was obsessed with gambling, but I was like, oh yeah, right. Okay. You got a system. And he was like, no, no, this is legit. Like this is math. It, you can win at blackjack by counting cards. And then he started to describe it to me. And I, I was kind of surprised that I had never heard of this, but he recommended a book called playing blackjack as a business. Now, this is in the 70s, okay? So um, there was not a lot of uh, literature about blackjack at the time. And uh, so I, I had to order the book specially from a bookstore, and I got the book. And I thought, wow, this is really legit. And so I started, I wasn't 21 years old yet. And I started practicing in my basement. Uh, I learned basic strategy backwards and forwards, and I would deal hands myself. And so my gift to myself, for my 21st birthday was one of these uh, four days and three nights in fabulous Las Vegas, all include, you know, airfare and hotel. And uh, so I flew out to Las Vegas right after I was 21. And uh, I won like a little over $200 and I, and only using basic strategy. I didn't, oh, wow. I hadn't, I hadn't learned to count cards yet. 
I mean, I was trying, but but I, I really hadn't learned yet. So just just with basic strategy, I won like $200 and I thought, man, you know, if I can win like this just with basic strategy, just think how much <laughs> I can win if I learned to count cards. So um, my plan was to finish college and then move to Las Vegas. And I didn't have a big bankroll. So I thought I'll get a job dealing blackjack and I can practice counting cards eight hours a day while I'm dealing. Uh, so that's what happened. I moved here. I started uh, practicing uh, while I was dealing. And then after work, I would go out and play. And back then, you know, you could play single deck tables with a $5 minimum. And and there were four deck tables with a $1 minimum. Oh, wow. So, um, you know, and, and on the strip, it was all stand 17. Uh, you know, there wasn't really surrender around, but it was stand on soft 17. So the single deck was even off the top. Wow. And um, uh, so, and uh, there was a backgammon club. And I, of course, I would go play backgammon. So the card counting community was really pretty small. So I started meeting a lot of guys and a guy comes to me one day and he says, Hey, there's this Australian guy in town and he wants to play backgammon for a lot of money. And I said, you know, set it up as much as he wants to play for. Cause at that time in my own mind, whether it's true or not, I thought I was certainly one of the top 20 players in the world. And wow. any of the 20 guys that were better than me, none of them were from Australia. So yeah. I, you know, I said, you know, set it up. And, um, so, uh, the day came where I was supposed to go play and I took a couple of friends of mine with me who were other backgammon players, just in case, uh, it turned into a chouette, which is backgammon for more than two people. And, um, when I got there, the first thing the guy said to me is, uh, look, I've done a lot of calling around about you. And he tells me I'm seriously outclassed. So <laughs> I don't want to, we were supposed to play backgammon for like $50 a point. And now he's like, you know, but if you want, I'm here. This was at the desert Inn. I'm here on a comp. We can play for small stakes and, you know, order lots of room service and have a party. <laughs> and I said, all right, that sounds great. Yeah. And uh, there were a bunch of other blackjack players there that were friends of his. So it became this party for a week, ordering all this room service and playing backgammon for small stakes. And um, the guys, uh, one of the Australians there, his name is Alan Woods. And if you read my yes. uh, book, Gambling Wizards, there's a whole interview with Alan. He went on to make a billion dollars in horse racing. Mm -hmm. And, uh, at the end of a week, Alan says to me, how come you guys are not playing blackjack for more money? And I said, well, you know, we don't have a big bankroll. Um, you know, so we're just, we're red chip players because it, by this time I had learned to count and we were out counting cards for nickels. And, um, he said, well, how about I put up $20,000 and you three guys play for me. And if you double the bankroll, then we'll split it 60-40. 60 to him as the investor. Mm -hmm. And I said, you've known us a week and you're going to give us $20,000 to go gamble in the casinos and report back to you how we did. And he reached in his pocket and he pulled out $20,000 and oh. slid it across the table to me. And, and I, you know, I was just blown away. And but but that is how I really started playing blackjack professionally. That is such an amazing story. So did you guys double the bankroll? 
No. So what happened was um, I could not win. I went on a 160-hour losing streak. And now I should tell you, we were playing all shoe games. Many of these uh, shoe games, there were many four-deck games with one deck cut or less. There were six-deck games with a 26-card cut. And we were spreading from a nickel to two hands of 200 on these games with tremendous penetration. And I just could not win. So I had uh, Alan and other people go out with me and sit at the table with me and count me down to make sure that I wasn't playing wrong. And, and we did this three or four times. And every time they said, no, you didn't make any mistakes. Just keep playing. (laughs) And, uh, you know, and, and, but then what happened was at the end of the 160 hours, Alan said, I have to go back to Australia. So we're going to have to end the bankroll here. And and the bankroll was stuck most of it because of me. And, um, So now Alan was playing on a team and when he was leaving, he said, you know, I've talked to the guys on my team and, you know, I've talked to them about you guys joining them. And one of my buddies, Craig joined them. The other, the second one, Timmy decided to go to New Mexico and get a master's degree and become a teacher. And I was like, this sucks. I can't win. I'm just going to, you know, stick with my job dealing blackjack. Oh man. And so that's what happened now. So Craig joined that team. I went back to just dealing and Craig started making money like crazy. They were just doubling <laughs> bankrolls like in a week. Um, and their bankrolls started out really small, 10 or $20,000, but they just kept, you know, doubling and doubling. And, um, Craig came to me. Th- thank you, Craig. And, uh, uh-huh. he said, um, look, you know, this works. We're making a ton of money. You should give it another try. And uh, I said, okay, I'll, I'll give it another shot. And, uh, and you know, I, so I went back and now I had to be tested, right? Because I had, mm-hmm. had this terrible record. So uh, my test was by one of the guys on the team. Uh, his name was Bill Benter. Oh, and yeah. uh, so the, <laughs> we go to the Golden Gate and uh, I get bought in and I'm there and I've got all these green chips and uh, Bill comes to the Golden Gate wearing a suit and tie, and he walks up to the table that I'm playing on, and he buys in for three crumpled $1 bills, because it was a $1 <laughs> table. So the dealer is changing his $3, and the pit boss comes running down the pit, and he's like, you can't play, <laughs> pointing oh, wow. to Bill. So uh, they, they backed us off. We went down to a place called the Orbit Inn, which then later became the Western and uh, they had a $25 max, and I just changed my units to $5 units and uh, tested out, and I tested fine, and I ended up joining that team with uh, uh, that Bill was on. And you finally started winning. And I finally started winning, <laughs> and yeah, the rest, the rest is history. <laughs> Well, with that, with that, uh, initial $20,000, like, Hey, here's a bunch of money, you know, I'll back you. Did you ever get a chance to pay that forward to another young advantage player? Uh, boy, I, I don't know, actually, I'd have to think about, well, I mean, uh, certainly my son, but, um, Uh I don't, not that I recall ever bankrolling somebody like that. Oh, wait yeah. a minute. No, I did. I did bankroll somebody 
now that I now that I probably have done it more than once, but I just haven't <laughs> thought about it. Um, those those times that I did that did not work out well. Oh, um, wow. so yeah. Well, that's a good answer. So people shouldn't start emailing you and asking you to to just oh, hand them yeah, twenty thousand dollars. Yeah, and and you know, like Alan, you know, most of the people that I know that have tried to do that kind of thing, it has not worked out well. Mm, that's interesting. Uh, but I think I did end up, um, you know, I did end up uh, making money for Alan eventually because, um, and and you know, this is sort of an example of the power of networks. Um, 1986, Alan calls me and he says, Hey, I have a game that I want you to go play and I'll bankroll it. And, you know, we'll, we'll split the money. And I said, well, at that time, you know, I was playing on a team with, uh, Daryl purpose, who many people know Mm -hmm. that name. And I've been playing with him for over 30 years. Um, and, uh, and a few other guys. And I said, look, I'm playing with this team and, and we're kind of, I'm committed to them. I can't go off and play by myself. And he says, well, I'll tell you what, I'll give you guys the game and you all can go play it. And whatever you guys were going to bet, just bet twice as much wow. and I'll put up half the bankroll. And so I ran it by the team and they were like, yeah, that sounds great. They had all met Alan by this point. And, um, and the game was in Korea and it was advantage off the top. And, um, you know, we ended up winning like a million and a half dollars. Oh my Uh, gosh. And, and Alan actually, at some point, I think we won about half a million. And at some point, Alan, Alan said, look, I I don't want to invest anymore. I feel guilty taking all this money for doing absolutely nothing. (laughs) You know, amazing. Yeah, Alan. Alan was a an enormous influence in my life. Actually, mm-hmm. there's there's uh, another story in Gambling Bo- Wizards in the interview with Alan about his forays into booking World Cup soccer, and uh-huh. um, this was another one of those deals where he called me up and he said, um, "Hey, uh, you know, I'm I'm getting all this action because all these Chinese bookies want to lay off their action on World Cup soccer to me. Do you want a little piece of it?" and uh, I, I was like, yeah, sure. You're right. You're going to have an edge, right? He's the yeah. bookie. He goes, okay. I was thinking, uh, you know, I'll give you, um, uh, a quarter of 1%. I was like <laughs> a quarter of 1%. Okay. All right. Thanks. You know, I mean, it's, it's free EV, but uh, you know, yeah. not much. Anyway, it gets to the finals and he calls me up and he says, listen, um, you know, you have that quarter of 1% and the finals are coming. And, uh, he goes, I was thinking about moving you down to a tenth of a percent because <laughs> because I don't know how big a swing you want to take. I was like, Alan, at a quarter of one percent, how big a swing can I take? And he goes, uh, $125,000. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I was like, um, yeah, go ahead. Move me down to a tenth. <laughs> um, so, yeah, again, I, I ended up making a bunch of money on that just because he called me up and offered it to me for wow. for. Nothing, you know, I mean, if he had yeah. lost, obviously I was, uh, you know, I, I had a portion of the downside as well, but, uh, but it's yeah. still, it's EV that, that I certainly wouldn't have had if he hadn't just called it up, called me up and offered it to me. That's a great example of, of networking that, that, uh, he was willing to give valuable information, um, that benefited him, but, but, you know, he wasn't just looking to gain. He was looking to find a win-win situation, which seems to be the the foundation of, of uh, networking as an advantage player. 
Yeah, and he wasn't asking for a free roll, right? I mean, yeah, he was yeah. willing to put up money, win or lose, yeah. which which mm-hmm. I think are the best kinds of deals to have. Absolutely. So I, I had I had a question about this. If I have it right, this uh, play you guys did in Korea was that for three years? Yeah, we lasted three and a half years. And wow. uh, what happened was very early on. I mean, very early on, the first couple of months. I walked into the casino one day and I counted 40 card counters that were all there. And there was sort of this knowledge that everyone had that if you did not bet more than three hands of 200, uh, they wouldn't throw you out. But I looked at this and now you could eat at the tables and these people, this was just like a job. They would come in, sit at the table, order their orange juice and their omelet and, you know, stay there for 10 hours a day. And, um, and, and we, my team, we did not want to bet $200. You know, we were, the limit was $3,000 and that's Mm. what we were betting. And I called up the team and I was like, this is not sustainable. Right. And now the casino was making more money than any casino I've ever seen in my life Oh wow! because the Japanese economy was booming at that time. And all of these players were Japanese. And you know how in you, if you go into an average casino, the average player walks up with a hundred dollar bill, basically yeah. here, the average buy-in was a thousand. Oh, wow. It was just mind boggling how much action these people were getting. So anyway, uh, I said, look, if we get, Japanese big players, they're never going to throw a Japanese pl- big player out of here, you know? Yeah. So we went, I went back to LA, Daryl and I put ads in Japanese newspapers. Oh and my I, goodness. I had done, um, shows in Japan. And so, uh, a couple of the dancers from the shows that I had done, one of them was married to a, a Japanese guy and we wanted Japanese guys who had Japanese passports. So, Mm -hmm. um, and when they would come in, they would come in from Tokyo, not from the U S. Uh, so we found big players and, uh, that's what we did. You know, we would sit there and bet minimum and, and they were gorillas. So we would tell them how much to bet and exactly how to play every hand. And, um, and that lasted for three and a half years. And, and what happened was one of the fleas in the casino, a Japanese flea, Figured it out eventually. And what's a Japanese flea? Oh, a flea is a guy in the casino who's basically a degenerate that's always broke and they're just always hanging around the casino and they're always Uh trying to bump money from people. Yeah. And, and, um, in this case, the guy just happened to be Japanese. He, our big player was eating in the restaurant and this guy came and sat down at his table and said, Hey, could you loan me $10,000? And, and our, you know, big player said, no, you know, I, I, no, I can't give you any money. And the guy said, well, gee, you know, what about the American guys that you're always playing with? You know, mm. what about them? They seem to have a lot of money. And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. And he was like, you know, he basically tried to blackmail the BP yeah. and said, if you don't give me money, I'm going to tell the casino. And the BP blew him off. And then sure enough, he went and ratted us out. And wow. so they, they started barring the white people. Right. And, and this was the nicest barring I've ever had in my life. They basically came and invited me to the back room and we drink tea and they offer me snacks and we're just <laughs> talking about nothing. And after five minutes, finally, the guy says, 
um, so sorry, you cannot play blackjack anymore. Wow. And I was like, what are you talking about? I'm only betting $5 a hand. Oh, I'm so sorry. You cannot play blackjack anymore. So that's what happened. They barred all the white wow. people. Um, that's incredible. It, oh, actually, I should say before that, they tried to bar the big player. And the big player said, <clears throat> I will go to the TV stations in Tokyo. I will go to the newspapers. I have friends in the media. You will never get another player from Japan. And they were like, oh, no, 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 no. You can still yeah. play. Just instead of 3,000, you can only bet 1,000. <laughs> he was wow. like, okay. So so we did that for a while. And then and then this happened. And, and um, uh, they yeah, they started barring the white people. And then uh, the jig was up. That is incredible. So were, were you single at the time or were you married? Did I, I was single at the time. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So I was, I was spending say. a lot of time over there. Yeah. I mean, you, you, I'm assuming you just lived over there for three years or, or would you go back and forth? Uh, well, we had an apartment, but yeah, we would all go back and forth. Um, so we didn't want the same face at the table all the time. Sure. So we would go back and forth. We'd go for two weeks and then go away for three or four weeks and then go back. You know, that kind of thing. Wow. Is that the largest play you've been a part of? Um, the the largest um, land-based play I've been a part okay. of. Okay. Um, there was even more money to be made online back in the heyday. Okay. Um, interesting. <laughs> so let's back. Well, one, one of the things I wanted to ask you is kind of what started your transition from card counting to pursuing other advantage plays. Oh, right away. I mean, when I first started counting cards uh, I, and had that horrible losing streak, I realized two things, right? The edge was really small. Mm -hmm. and uh the heat was really big and <laughs> and i should say back then the shuffles were the easiest one pass shuffle that you can possibly imagine so mm -hmm. the team that i joined with bill benter was entirely devoted to shuffle tracking we were mm -hmm. not straight counting we were all shuffle tracking and i started playing whole cards at that time too and and there was this big discussion because some guys had an ethical dilemma about whole cards and mm -hmm. others didn't. And, you know, how should the hours be counted? And, you know, there were all those kind of discussions. And um, after uh, I played with that team for a while. Um, so so back to your question, I, I transitioned right away, away from count okay. street counting into uh, shuffle tracking and whole cards. And, um, and, and, and also there were also these discussions. Some guys did not trust handheld games, especially in Reno. So when that team broke apart, uh, I, that was the first time I retired, um, you know, back in like 1982 or something. Uh -huh. And, uh, and I moved to Los Angeles to, um, uh, you know, get involved in the film business. And then, uh, Something came up uh, with Daryl. Then, and that's when I started playing with Daryl. Is um, he was going to? He he was looking for bankroll. He was going to use a shuffle tracking computer, and uh, so I made my first trip to Europe with Daryl with the shuffle tracking computer. Um, and then uh, uh, when I started to play again, I started playing with Daryl instead of the guys I'd been playing with in the past. Okay, and you told that story last time. Uh, eight years ago about about the computers in Europe. 
how all that went down. So, but, and just to reiterate to people, it it was legal at the time to be using. Yes. Yeah. 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 And the reason he wanted to go to Europe first to work out all the kinks before he played Uh within the United States. Oh, interesting. And, And it was legal at that time. The only places in the United States that were open were Nevada and, uh, Atlantic city. There were no other casinos. So, you know, and those were going to be big, uh, you know, big places to make money. And he wanted to make sure that he had everything down and smooth before. Sure. That makes sense. So it it seems to become kind of a running joke that that you're retired until you aren't until you come out of retirement. (laughs) Yeah. What's what's kind of your personal criteria for coming out of retirement or, or even going into retirement? Is it that you just find something that you want to spend your time on? Is it financial? Is it some combination? Well, the current <laughs> iteration, um, you know, if if it's a play that is really unusual and looks like, um, well, being really unusual, it'd be a part of it. So, for example, in that New York Times article with the craps play, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, I, that was going to be, that was going to be fun. You know, I like the, it, it has to be, I like the people I'm working with. I, um, it's something unusual, uh, or different. And, and, uh, uh and the other possibility would be is if it's in the location I really wanted to go to. Okay. So, you know, Can I'd you- be much more likely to go to, uh, you know, uh, some play in the South of France, than uh you know iowa in the middle of winter okay <laughs> can can you give the brief version of the story of the uh craps play uh well uh, you know basically in in oklahoma they had to um i mean people can just google new york times uh sure advantage player richard munchkin or something like that and they'll find it but uh, you know it was basically they couldn't use dice to play craps and uh they did not design the game really well so you know we found a way to take advantage of it i, okay. I should say we i mean you know james grossing found a yeah. way to take advantage of it and, okay and i was you know basically a, a gorilla being doing what i was being told <laughs> you uh-huh. know? <laughs> so how much time would you and your partners regularly put into learning new skills or maintaining your skills um Wow. Uh, you know, certainly in the beginning, a lot. I mean, yeah. a, a lot, a lot. Um, you know, almost everybody had, uh, again, because we were shuffle tracking, almost everybody had stacks of cards in quarter deck increments in their apartment, you know, that they were putting into discard racks to estimate how many cards it were, things like that. I, I, I spent a lot of time uh, learning to sequence you know, um, you know, but, uh, you know, as the years went on less and less, but, but if I were to go out on a sequencing play, I would certainly, you know, brush up and study yeah. or whatever. How, how many hours do you think you put into mastering sequencing? Um, I would say probably, I mean, and I'm, I'm just pulling a number out of my ass cause I really don't know, but I I'm guessing <laughs> Uh, probably a hundred hours at least. Yeah. Not in a casino. And then you really don't, you're really not learning until you actually get into a casino and try to do it for real. 
even yeah. more so than card counting, right? Yeah. There's a there's a big step when you actually get into a casino when you're learning to count cards. Um, but with sequencing, it's even more, you know, it's 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 more difficult going to the actual table and trying to. Um, I find it exhausting. Mm. You know, really exhausting. It, it, it reminded me a lot of playing chess tournaments where you're so focused on something for hours uh, mm-hmm. that by the time you're done, you're just a babbling idiot. Um, <laughs> you know, so in the beginning, you know, maybe I could only do three shoes and and I, and I just couldn't do it anymore. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, um yeah, so it, it it just takes time in the casino. The problem is there just aren't the games anymore, you know? Yeah. Um, that was a really fun game to play, but but there just weren't many opportunities. Yeah. Do you find, I mean, I hear occasionally about a one-pass shuffle, um, but yeah. That's I why, don't you know, really. People ask me about, should I learn to shuffle track? I want to learn to sequence. And I'm like, why would you, I mean, Unless you're doing it just sort of as a hobby to, yeah. to learn a new skill, uh, you know, uh, find a game, then then learn it. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, you know, I guess the reason I brought up even this topic is I think that it's good for people to hear about how a professional treats advantage play as their profession. Um, I think it's kind of easy, you know, you get into – card counting, or at least for myself, I got into card counting and, and I'm math minded. I had a math degree. I was a, a good student in college, all that stuff, uh, good work ethic, but it felt like, oh, I'm, I'm learning to play a game. I, it wasn't like I'm starting a career, but then right. when, when I talk to advantage players that it is their career, that it's, it's a different level. You know, I, I follow some professional sports and it's amazing. You know, the, the, the top athletes, they treat, or they even say with the NFL, you know, for, for some people, the difference is the people that can treat it like a, like a profession versus those that are just as athletically gifted, but don't have that same, you know, drive. Um, oh, so, yeah. It's, yeah. It's all about work ethic. No yeah. question. It is all about how hard you work, uh, you know, and that's why, you know, these guys like, you know, Rymo and Yoshi and all that are like driving six hours a day, every day and mm-hmm. in and out of the, you know, I mean, good for them. You know, <laughs> I, part of my problem was I was not, I was kind of lazy. Like <laughs> I, I, um, <laughs> I didn't mind the studying at home, Yeah. but mm-hmm. oh man, I hated the driving, you know, yeah. like you go on a trip to St. Louis and then you're done and you have to drive across the state to Kansas city and the, you know, uh, I hated that part of it. Uh, yeah. It seems that in some capacity, though, you have to have this uh, very high level approach. So, you know, like uh, one of these days you'll have to stop in for um, Joe's talk. He always gives at the end of our boot camp. It's like the last talk. And I feel like it sums up the entire weekend. But it shows the level of effort he puts into being a professional. Um, and, and it's different, you know, for him, it's primarily been card counting, but it is a high level. It's not a, Hey, I learned this game and I walk into casinos and I make all this money. It is, he treats it like a career, but I think for you, it sounds like that effort has been put into not just learning, but mastering a wide variety of, of skills 
Uh, is that accurate? Yeah, I, I think it is. Um, and, and the other thing, um, you know, if you, if you look at a guy that basically the, the best player ever, um, James Grossstein, you know, here's a guy who studies the center of cards, like, you know, clips out a little one inch square in the center of the card of the face cards to be able to differentiate between a Jack Mm. and a queen and a King, or, or you could just show him a piece of the hat and he's going to know what the card is. And it's just, you know, somebody who puts in that level of effort. Well, yeah, they're going to be freaking great. (laughs) You know, I mean, (laughs) because he's focused so much on, you know, whole cards that he wants to be able to know that card. If he sees any tiny little sliver of it from any angle. Um, yeah. That's that's a really good example. Um, while on the topic of whole carding, I know this is one of the questions that uh, one of our members had is that in your interview of Refinery, you talked about how many people have said that they could not see a whole card until someone pointed it out, and now they can't unsee it. Is that right. how it was? Is that how it was the first time you saw a whole card? Or did someone um, point it out to you? No, no. I... I um... No, I knew. And and back then, remember, there were two kinds of whole cards back then because they yeah. checked under tens and aces. Mm-hmm. So there were first basers, which were everywhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, everywhere. And, and, you know, basically, we didn't even bother to play unless it was 100%. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, back then, it was like, oh, the guy's only, you know, 70%. Nah, I'm not going to play that game. Um, now, I was bad at playing first basers because you need to be tall to mm. see for those games. Um, but, uh, no, to answer your question, um, no one had to show it to me. Um, I, you know, I, I, I don't know how I first knew. Um, but, but the games were so much easier than that, you know, it, it wasn't as hard, as hard to see. Like, for example, if, if, if people, were around 20 years ago when three card poker first came out, they would not have to sh- have someone show them how to see a whole card in three card poker. I mean, they were coming out of that machine, like waving it in front of your face before they put uh-huh. it down. So, um, you know, but it's actually good when the games get tougher because when they're too easy, you have way too many players. Yeah. You know, it's just like the law of the jungle, right? There, there are too many animals and they eat up all the grass <laughs> and, then they all starve, <laughs> you know? Um, but you at least knew to look for it. It sounds like that it was something that was discussed. Colin, you know what my, here, here was um, my superpower. <laughs> I, when there are teams, there are different people who do, who do different things, right? You have the guy who is the math guy who sits at home and analyzes stuff, right? Uh-huh. And you have guys who are scouts that will be out there, you know, 15 hours a day going from place to place to place looking for stuff. And what my strength was, was I knew how to network. Mm. I knew everybody. And at the time, I didn't realize that that's what I was doing. I just did it because it came natural to me. Mm -hmm. And so I was the guy who... Alan Woods called when he had the game in Korea. And yeah. so that benefited my whole team. Right. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. So, 
and and there were many examples of things like that where you know expanding your network that that was what i brought to my team was the network wow. that's awesome because uh that brings a lot of context to you know the stories you've told or or even probably gambling wizards in some ways but it was also my next question so you answered it before i even asked it oh. is what what was your main skill that you brought brought to partnerships or teams and by um, the way i don't think you can fake that no you know what i mean it, it, it's either who you are or it's not just like you can't yeah. fake uh being a, a numbers guy you either yeah. can write code and analyze things or not you know yeah. Um, yeah. You could probably grow in that skill. You can develop it, but sure, yeah, sure. if you, if you don't have it, it's going to come across that you're just kind of nosy and irritating as opposed to, you know, someone that, that provides uh, value in, in being networked with. Yeah. Well, and yeah, you, you have to provide, it's always a two way street. The other thing is teams need a manager, you know, no, no matter how loosely formed they are, teams need someone to make the decisions. And go, yeah. okay, we're going to Iowa in the middle of winter or whatever, you know. Um, so, that, you know, that's another skill. Yeah, that, that was, I think, what, what uh, I think some people think it's crazy that Ben and I charged to run, run the blackjack team. But uh, it, it oh. wouldn't have run, it, run itself. No, um, any big team. And, and by the way, you know, it, when this Korea, when the Korea thing happened, you know, we ended up with, I think I've told this story before, uh, you know, we ended up with money in six different currencies on four different continents. And wow. not only do you need a manager, you need serious freaking accounting, yeah. you know? And after that, I realized I really don't want to be part of a big team anymore. Yeah. You know, I, too, too I'm complicated. much happier with, you know, two or three or four guys, uh, you know, we play for a weekend and we chop it up at the end of the weekend and, you know, and, and we play, you know, that kind of way. Um, but it doesn't sound like you regret the Korea three years. Oh no. I, you, you know, <laughs> you, you don't know something until you learn it. You know what I yeah. mean? And, and yeah. I didn't know, I mean, basically it became like a job, right? Yeah. It was sort of mm -hmm. corporate. Um, Do you think that's why you went, to start making films after that? Well, no, I, you know, I always had two loves, right? I yeah. started out in the theater and my degree was in theater and I always wanted to, uh, go to LA and, and be an actor basically. Mm -hmm. Um, and I found out pretty quickly that acting in film and television was not like acting on stage. And so, mm. uh, I did not want to do that anymore. And I moved over into directing, which I loved, but, you know, the film business, the thing that's great about the gambling business, I, you know, I keep mentioning my book, not that, you know, uh, I'm trying to tout the book, but um, Chip Reese in the interview with Chip Reese, you know, he says, like, you are as successful as you want to be in gambling. Like, you work as much as you want, as hard as you want. Mm -hmm. You put as much whatever effort you want. Right. It, it, it really is a meritocracy. Whereas in the film business, you're constantly at the mercy of someone else trying to get them to give you the job. Yeah. And so I always made my money gambling because I just was not making enough money in the film business. Mm -hmm. So I've always had my kind of feet in two different worlds there. I guess I was thinking if, 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 uh, the Korea play, if it started to feel like a 
just like a grind. Uh, even if the money was good, I understand saying, you know, let me let me focus on you know this other passion for a while. Well, that's what happened when Korea ended, right? Yeah. So mm-hmm. after when exactly. Korea ended, I retired again until <laughs> you know the next thing came up. <laughs> um, well, I know you're saying you don't want to tout Gambling Wizards, but I I reread it recently uh, during this quarantine, and and you know. Yeah, I, I remember the first time I asked if you would, if I could interview you. This is probably more than eight years ago, and and I said, oh, we could even promote your book. And you laughed and you said, Colin, I've placed bets bigger than I've made off that book. Oh, by uh, so, a mile, by a yeah. mile. You know, uh, so, yeah, that, that's why I say I, I don't want to. I guess what I should say is I don't want this to be like a commercial for the book. First of yeah. all, it's twenty years old, okay, <laughs> but. But just to give some people some perspective, because it, it always used to make me laugh when people would say, oh, you know, he can't play. Not about me, but anybody yeah. who writes a book like, oh, he can't play. He's making money off his books. Right. OK, that book has been out for 20 years. I think I've made a total of ten thousand dollars off that book. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I, I yes, totally <laughs> yeah, I've definitely being... placed bets bigger than that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that that being said, some of the some of the stories in there are so high level. It feels like you're getting into the mind of the top 1% of the top 1% of professional gamblers. I yeah. mean, I don't know if you agree or disagree. No, I mean, that's true. Billy Walters, uh, Alan Woods, uh, you yeah. know, uh, Stan Thompson is the guy who started Pinnacle Sports. I mean, yeah. you know, yeah, you're right. They are the top 1% of the top 1%. So when you were conducting those interviews, did you ever think, I need to be doing more of what they're doing? Or did you already know what you know the level of of what they were doing well um th- no i didn't think i ought to be doing what they're doing because i didn't have the skills right i mean okay uh, to, to bet horses or sports you really you need to be a computer programmer mm-hmm. who understands modeling right and and i'm not that um you know uh m- poker you know uh it's it's just not a lifestyle that i mm-hmm like, right. I don't want to sit in a chair for 12 hours a day. Um, you know, so no, I, I really didn't think I should do what they're doing. Um, I, I liked the area of gambling that I was involved in. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, would I like to have made the kind of money they were making? Sure. (laughs) (laughs) You know, um, but you know, sports and horse racing are much bigger casinos than, than blackjack tables. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So kind of going back to the, you know, the, skill set that you had or or the kinds of uh professional gambling you were doing what's the most amount of effort you ever put into mastering an advantage play skill would it be sequencing or something else more that took more time um it would either be sequencing or shuffle tracking mm-hmm. um you know i mean it's hard to look back and and remember how much time Actually, you want to know, I, I actually think that I spent more time learning to count cards. Oh, wow. I mean, really like, you know, um, you know, learning to count cards takes a long time. I, I, just yeah. learning basic strategy. Part of it was I wasn't, I couldn't go to a casino when I was first learning. Right. So mm-hmm. I probably spent a couple of hundred hours just working on basic strategy and, and playing uh, and dealing to myself, trying to count yeah. in my basement. And and the other thing is when you're shuffle tracking, you've already you already know how to count cards. So that part is done, which is, you know, a big portion of yeah. it. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it, now that I think about it, I probably spent more time learning to count cards than, <laughs> than any of those others. And think about that. It's got the worst edge <laughs> and the most amount <laughs> of the heat. And, uh, so, but it would not have led me into all these other things without that foundation. Yeah. Well, and, and the Korea play was, uh, well, yes. Yeah. Card counting. Yeah. Yep. That's true. So any, uh, any play that you initially identified that no longer exists that you can tell us about a no because uh-huh. uh, <laughs> just because i wouldn't want to talk about the kind of what it involved to make the play <laughs> um, sure well yeah. the, here's here's maybe a, a different way of approaching it uh let's just take with with hole carding when you you know first started to see a whole card, what was that kind of discovery or diagnosis like uh, from going from, hey, I just saw a whole card to, you know, um, kind of being being able to play it? Yeah, well, so, I'm, yeah, so I, I see a whole card, I'm on the game, and I, of course I play it. Uh, then sort of the next step is two things. One, I have to go look at the charts, which the only charts around at the time were in Ken Houston's book that I'm aware of. Um, and, uh, you know, for what the right plays are and, Oh, I need to put time into looking for this instead of just counting cards. I need to spend time looking for this. And again, just my superpower uh, I don't know that I sh- I don't know that I should be calling it that, but whatever. Uh, very quickly, I started finding other whole card players and comparing mm-hmm. notes and and learning more because because they were doing it too. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that, uh, yeah. Uh, so that was kind of the thought process. Okay, uh, yeah. Is, is that uh, Ken Houston on blackjack or? I think or it was a million dollar, dollar blackjack. blackjack. Okay. I think it was a million dollar blackjack. Yeah. Um, okay. I've got I've got Ken Houston on blackjack on my shelf right here. I think million dollar blackjack is is in Vegas right now. My copy, but you know um, um, that that second the the uh, Ken Houston on blackjack. I think that was his last book, and I think he took okay. a lot of stuff from other books. So it would not surprise me if that chart is in there. Okay. Okay. So yeah, you had to go from seeing it to um, to knowing how to play it to kind of take scouting it kind of shifting the way that you're approaching uh advantage play in the casino from just going to a table to play to you know looking and seeing where you could find a whole card and and then it went to actually like refining it by sharing notes with other other whole carters is that yes sum it up yep yep um and when you would uh go into casino scouting it did you know the edge it had? Had that been well calculated already? Well, no. Um, I mean, the the um, like the full hole card edge. Actually, I shouldn't say that. Uh, both of the both of them. Uh, the difference between a first baser and a and a you know full hole card. Uh, those edges were not calculated correctly, uh, oh, wow. and it wasn't until. Uh, Grossstein's book that they were calculated correctly. Mm. They messed up on the uh, insurance, as, as I recall. I think that was the problem. But it turned out that first basers were worth much more than what the book said they were worth. Oh, and interesting. We kind of felt 
like they were worth more. We we saw the numbers. You, you got to remember the numbers were not that great back then, and we saw the numbers and we were like, man, it feels like we're winning more than than that. You know what I yeah. mean? Um, and uh, uh, and but just to give you an example of the numbers, right? Um, Arnold Snyder published this thing on depth charging, right? And he put the edge at, I think, 0.9. And we went out after Korea, we went out, we were depth charging on single deck, seven spots, and, you know, betting massive, uh, yeah. two or three hands at 2,000, right? And just got massacred. And, oh. and then when compute, when simulations started coming and g- getting more accessible and all that numbers actually got ran and it turned out that the edge was closer to like 0.6. And I remember oh. Daryl went to Arnold and he was like, Hey, you know, we, we lost all this money. We we're betting. You said it was 0.9. It turned out he was 0.6 and he was like, Oh yeah, I guess I was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So, uh, I mean, I, I was not enamored of that play anyway. I was not enamored. Yeah playing with less than a 1% edge. Sure. Um, but, you know, we had a massive bankroll at that point, and we thought, well, we can put a lot of money in action. And, and uh, but yeah, anyway. So did you guys abandon that? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Uh, I think we had already abandoned it when the numbers came out later. And um, But uh, the thing is, um, so when I really started playing more hole cards, it was when I teamed up with Daryl and those guys because um, uh, I guess what some people would call front loaders, I don't know what to call them, but games where you see the car, the entire, you see the card all the time. Yeah. Those were still pretty rare, but first basers were everywhere. And as mm-hmm. I mentioned, I had a hard time reading first basers because I was short and you have to kind of see over the dealer's hand that is protecting the whole card. And uh-huh. so um, they were much taller than I was. And so when I teamed up with them, that's when we were playing a lot more hole cards. And I was then a BP, not a reader. Uh, okay. Um, and that must have transitioned uh, to you being more of a reader or, or did, were you generally more no, of a BP? I, with- I, could re- I was generally a BP unless, unless it was a, you know, a regular, uh, like a hand-dealt hole card where, you're, uh-huh. where you need to be short. You know, then I could read those games, but we were playing probably 90% for spacers and 10% uh, of those kind of games. Okay. So is there anything that you would consider the easiest play you've ever pulled off that you can share with us? Yeah, I can't go into too much detail, but the easiest play, again, I got a call from a guy (laughs) who was like, I have a play, you know, do you want to do it? And, you know, the EV is like... I forgot what he told me, five or 6,000 a day. And, uh-huh. uh, I was like, okay, yes, I'm, I'm willing to travel. Um, uh, and he says, okay. And he tells me where to book a flight, you know, can you come tonight? I was like, yes. Uh, I said, how much money should I bring? He said, oh, you probably need 40 or 50 bucks for food. Oh my gosh. And that's incredible. Uh, I, uh, I was like, Okay, so uh, of course I brought ten thousand. You know, he told me I didn't need any money, but you know, as Groshin says in his book, you know, pack half as many clothes and twice as much money. Oh, um, that's good. Yeah. So uh, I, you know, 
So I, I flew there, and it was a video poker game where they it was a progressive, and for some reason they had put the straight flush progressive on the straight. Oh, wow. And... Um, and and so basically, we just locked up the machine twenty four hours a day, and we had uh, kind of a minder sitting next to him, so nobody could sit next to the person playing the machine yeah. and see what was happening. And um, it happened to ha- it happened just at the right time of year, where it was the busiest week of the year in that particular place. And wow. so I think they were too busy to realize how much money they were losing. Yeah, and. Um, you know, it was just kind of a perfect storm. A lot of things went right. The, you know, it was a 25 cent 10 play. So there were no W two G's unless you hit a Royal. So, so we never would hold a single high card in because of hitting a Royal. Um, you know, uh, we did everything possible to not hit a Royal. Um, and you know, so it just, it worked out and, you know, we want a lot of money for, uh, yeah. as you say, the easiest play That's imaginable. Right. Um, so you actually told me this story in person. I didn't think you would share it on, on the interview, but but uh, it's just uh, it's just as fun hearing. <laughs> hearing, I remember when when you told me it, it just sounded too good to be true. But but if people are out there, you know, those things exist. You know, may, maybe a once had, once in yeah. once a lifetime. We've had a number of those stories on Gambling with an Edge. You know yeah. where. A five dollar uh, video poker uh, is suddenly changed to a one dollar, but they don't reset the meters yeah. or something. You know, um, yeah, those things happen. If you're out there uh, beating the bushes, eventually you're going to walk into a gold mine, or occasionally yep. you're going to walk into a gold mine. Yeah, I, you know, I think about that with advantage play. It's it's kind of the idea of people create their own luck. You know, if if you learn the skills, if you put in the effort, you know, you're going to come across you know, something at some point it is, you know, if your mind is open, that's the other thing, you know, one of the sort of flaws that a a lot of card counters have is they walk into a casino with tunnel vision. They're going to go straight to the first blackjack table. They see that, you know, is empty or whatever, and just count cards and they Mm -hmm. don't even look around at what else is, is there. Yeah, that's, that's definitely, you know, I could say that's, that's how we, primarily did things playing and running teams and we made money doing it but uh i've said this before if i could do it over i would have done a better job networking and i would have uh worked harder at adding other tools to the tool belt uh and i think that we could have you know rather than the team making three million we could have maybe made 10 million over that same you know five-year stretch or whatever it was um so you you mentioned you've shared some of these stories on gambling with an edge well has a gambling with an edge interview ever led to advantage play opportunities for you? Um, you know, I, I, I'm going to say it must have, but but uh, <laughs> I, I I can't think of one offhand. I mean, I've certainly yeah. gotten emails from people saying, "Hey, here's an opportunity," or whatever. Wow. Um, usually, I have not uh, taken them up on it. Um, uh, because you know, what's a great opportunity for one person for me, you know, I'm retired. (laughs) Um, but the other thing that's happened is, you know, we have had people 
because of their interview on Gambling with an Edge, they were contacted by other people who then they ended up doing things together. You know what I mean? Um, And and that always feels good when you can, um, you know, it's horrible when it ends up being somebody who rips somebody off. But um, but it's great when it 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 ends up being a great partnership, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, So. I wanted to transition into a little bit more of a kind of By a cover. The way, and, I, yeah. I'm trying to remember. I think it might be the episode coming out next week. Uh, we had a guy on a number of years back called Lone Wolf, who's uh, a part-time player. And um, uh, we had him come back and because he plays now with his daughter. And so oh, he came on with his daughter. And I have a feeling they're going to get a lot that she's going to get a lot of emails, uh, you know, with a lot of offers because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, she's got skills and and a lot of people would be in a better situation to use them than her father because he works a regular job and he's only a part time. Sure. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Well, you'll have to have a third podcast with uh, maybe with her. Uh, down the road in a couple of years and and uh, find out where where things led. Yeah. Yep. So I want to uh, actually, you know, one of our members wanted to know you you rarely give ideas is I think the understanding, but what has been your strategy for avoiding CTRs when playing higher limits? Well, I I've said this many times. After a play, I never ever cash out. Right when you but what, finish what about playing, a CTR at the tables? You know, if it, being in ten thousand, or do you just avoid? No, that? I get in nine thousand, and I have to stop. And okay, that's why, regardless, you have a, yeah, that's why you have, yeah, yeah, and and that's why you have a chip bank, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you you accumulate chips from the places you're going to play, and you know, if we were going to go play a place and we um, did not have chips. Let's say we were going to start play on Friday. Well, a bunch of us would get there on Thursday and go in and buy as many chips mm. as we can and not even play. Just start accumulating chips. Yeah, um, that's really smart. Okay, that's a, that's a great answer. Um, what about disguises? I know Tommy Highland, he's used wigs and so he's talked about that uh, when we've Santa Claus. <laughs> Santa Claus or, or he even had like a Hollywood makeup person, you know, make him some stuff. Uh, it, did you ever go that route? Well, I did for the team, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because I was involved, I had worked with a special effects makeup artist. Um, and so I did do that with the team to change their, their appearances. Um, you know, uh, Daryl, when he first came back from Europe with the computer, I mean, he was probably the most notorious card counter in the United States at that wow. time. Right. I mm-hmm. mean, um, and so he had lost a bunch of weight. And he uh, got a perm and uh, and dyed his hair black, and he grew a, a goatee and dyed it black, and he got skin tint, and now he oh, wow. looked like he was African American. And he wow. went to the DMV that way, and had his driver's license picture taken that way, and he had had a name change, right? And so he was playing as an African American guy. And uh, he he came back from a, a flight to Atlantic City, and uh, I took him to go rent a car, and now he didn't have the disguise on, and uh, 
he goes to rent the car and he gives the guy his driver's license and the guy goes, you kind of lost your tan. And Daryl <laughs> goes, oh, I was wearing a disguise. <laughs> right? right? Wow. Like that's a legitimate answer to yeah. the guy. And the guy called the police. He thought it was oh. a stolen driver's license. Um, oh. But anyway, so yeah, I, I did go that route with a lot of people. I didn't do anything that involved makeup. Uh, you know, my hair has been every color. I've had perms. I've had long hair, short hair, uh, facial hair, contact lenses, all that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, I remember the first time that I started getting barred everywhere in Vegas, I realized I needed to change my look. Right. And, um, at the time I had really kind of bushy, uh, permed brown hair and these kind of dark tinted glasses and a mustache. So I cut the hair really short, took all the curl out of it, dyed it ash blonde, shaved, got contact lenses. And, uh, I thought, you know, um, my neck is kind of recognizable. And so I wore a neck brace and, oh. and because I had the neck brace, I thought I'll use a cane. Right. And my story, uh -huh. a, it'll change the way I walk and B, uh, my story will be, I had a car accident. Yeah. So I go into the sands and I start playing and the shift manager is looking at me and looking at me and I can tell the way he's looking at me. He's like, boy, this guy looks familiar, but I didn't, I don't know, you know, who he is now. Remember the year prior, I had been dealing blackjack right across yeah. the street at the castaways. Right. So these people, they had seen me a lot. Yeah. And, um, anyway, I'm playing, everything is fine. And after, but I see him go over and he talks to a dealer and now they're both looking at me and they can't place me. And this woman pit boss comes into the pit and she goes, what happened to you? And I go, <laughs> Oh, I had a car accident. She goes, no, I'm into your hair. <laughs> she knew exactly who I was immediately. And I said, Oh, I, I have a part in a movie in LA and they made me dye my hair. And, uh, she goes, Oh, now she didn't think there was, she didn't know me as a card counter. She yeah. knew me as the dealer from across the street, but now she goes over and she tells the shift manager who I was. And uh. now he comes back and you know, he's thinking anybody, any guy who changes his appearance this much must be up to something anyway. Yeah. So basically I realized there's no way I'm going to be able to win any money at that point. So, uh, you know, I just you got left. out of there. Yeah. That's funny. Um, I've got a few more questions if you're up for it. I know, I know, uh, sure. this is really yeah, no, fun. awesome. Awesome. So uh, if, if your nephew or a close friend's son wanted to get into advantage play, what would be the top books you would recommend to them? Um, well, it depends on how keen an interest I was going to take. <laughs> uh -huh. So if they wanted to be a card counter, uh, I would recommend, uh, the book I now recommend to people is blackjack blueprint. Mm -hmm. um, by Rick Blaine, uh, night train Blaine. Um, I, I like that book a lot because it's not just the facts. Uh, it has stories in it. And I would also recommend your book, Colin, not to oh. blow smoke up your ass because <laughs> it's your podcast, but no, I, again, because it's got stories in it and you hear, you know, what it's actually like. So, um, now in the case of my own son, I told him, you know, you are not allowed to learn how to count cards <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because mm -hmm. if you do, you're going to want to go do it. And, um, 
Uh, and unfortunately, there aren't really any books. I mean, Exhibit CAA is a tremendous book, but it's not a reference. I mean, it's yeah. a reference book. It's not going to teach you how to go out and make money. It's mm -hmm. there. So, for example, back in the day when I first saw the whole card and was like, oh, I need to go learn the strategy. Well, there's the reference book that you go that yeah. has all the charts, right? So, uh, you know, but reading it is not going to teach you how to go out and be an advantage player. So yeah. as far as I know, there is no book that's going to teach you those things. Um, it, it's really just going to come down to your network and, and ability to, to be taught yep. the skills. Cool. Yep. That's And how that's hard fair. you're willing to work. Yep. Good. Good. That's fair enough. Well, let's say you could sit down with 21-year-old Richard Munchkin. Any top advice you would give? give you know him? what? I, I used to say that uh, I, I regret not working harder when I was young and single, right? Mm. Uh, I mean, th these whole cards were everywhere, and I could have worked a lot more hours. But now I look back at it and I go, well, why would that have been better? I mean, mm. yeah, okay, I'd have more money in the bank, but, you know, I'm doing okay. So yeah. I don't know that that would have been better. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, I, I don't know. Um, I, I don't really have any regrets, you know? Uh, I think that's, I think that's fair. I think, you know, people need to kind of, this is the kind of final advice I always give at a boot camp is to figure out if and how advantage play fits into your goals. Because yeah, exactly, exactly. So winning isn't about having the most money. It's about yeah. being happy and enjoying yeah. your life. Like, I mean, could I go back to 21-year-old me and say, learn how to become a computer programmer and get involved in horse racing with Bill? You know, well, yeah, I, I would have made a lot of money, but but would I have been happier? I don't know. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know that computer programming would have been the thing that makes me happy. Yeah. No, I think that's, I think that's good for people to hear, you know, figure out I mean, how the other thing for me is, it, you know, um, I like to say that the arts is a habit that you have to afford, right? It's kind of like mm -hmm. heroin. And, mm -hmm. um, so, you know, Daryl is a singer songwriter. Uh, I'm an actor filmmaker, but we chose gambling as a way to support that habit. Yeah, but the you know those things br brought me more joy than the actual gambling. Yep, yeah, I absolutely get it. Uh, people always want to know why I'm not out playing, and and with with what I'm able to do, I'm home with my kids. You know, they're only going to yeah. be young for for a little while, and to be able to be home with them, you know, is is worth, uh, you know. Many years with Blackjack Apprenticeship, I made far less money than I was making playing or, or running teams, but I, I never regretted it because I knew what I what was more important to me than yeah, uh, yeah. making more money. Yep. A couple more questions for you. One of them, do you still play backgammon? You know, um, I was playing on my phone. The, the best backgammon program is called Extreme Gammon, and they made an app. Uh, called XG, um, and I was playing on my phone. I had kind of gotten interested again, uh, but then uh, I don't think they're updating the app, and it does not work on my phone any longer. 
So, uh, so basically, no. But uh, a lot of my friends on Facebook are backgammon players, so I see positions all the time, <laughs> right? Okay. People are posting positions and discussing them. So I'm still kind of peripherally interested, but I haven't actually been doing any playing. Okay, okay. So someone shouldn't contact you and say, as high of stakes as you'll play. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, yeah, no. So uh, another question for you. You worked as a dealer when you first moved to Vegas from uh, Chicago, I believe. Just outside um, Chicago, yeah. Would you ever con- consider, I mean, obviously you're retired, but ethically, would you have ever considered working for a casino again, or would that have just been too tough having been on the advantage player side? Oh, I, it wouldn't be tough at all. Um, oh, Okay. Uh, and I actually, I used, I used to say like when I'm 80, I want to have a job dealing the big six, like one day a week, (laughs) (laughs) you know, just like, uh, that would be fun. Uh, I think, but, um, no, I mean, uh, you know, I have no reason to go work for a casino, but I, I, you know, when I worked in the casino, you know, I had a blast. I, I, you know, I loved it because I was meeting card counters every day and, you know, I would talk to them on the table and, you know, I, I didn't bust people. I, I just, you know, I would deal to, I would deal them the best game they ever had in their life. (laughs) You know, I remember one time I was dealing to Peter Griffin single deck Uh and, um, uh, you know, he, he says, um, he doesn't have his bet in the square. I say, are you going to bet? And he goes, you only have seven cards left. I go, yeah, <laughs> there's only two of us, you know? So uh, uh-huh. yeah, I, I would deal people the greatest, the best game they ever had. Well, now you're going to get a lot of emails, people asking if you would start working for a casino again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I got another one for you. I don't know if you're going to be able to answer this, but people want to know what's the Steven Seagal story. Oh God. I, I had a friend who was, uh, they they were shooting a Steven Seagal movie in Thailand, and uh, my friend was working in the main office back in L.A., and she's going through the cost reports, and she's going through receipts and stuff, and she finds this person, and she's like, who is this person on the payroll? Who is, you know, I, I don't know who this person is, and what is their job? And they say, oh, that person's job is to take the labels out of Steven's clothes and put in new labels that have smaller sizes because he, he <laughs> fat. So oh yeah. Oh my that, gosh. Yeah, that was yeah. <laughs> That's incredible. And it's it, a, yeah, it's just amazing. Like the, wow. the stuff that you that they do to uh, appease uh, quote unquote stars. Wow. Yeah. I mean, like, there's, there's... Did he, in his mind, did he really think like, oh, my jacket isn't a 48. It's only a 42. I'm, I yeah. mean, does he think he's losing weight? Or or does he not want someone to accidentally see the 48 in his jacket because they might, you know, judge yeah. him for it? That is, yeah, that's I incredible. Guess. That's awesome. Well, we got to the bottom of it. Yeah. <laughs> Inquiring minds have have wanted to know ever since you mentioned it. Um, oh, by the way, I have I have another Steven Seagal uh, story. Um, so uh, back when I was doing martial arts movies, Steven Seagal was kind of in his heyday, 
And um, there was a famous wrestler, not not like pro professional wrestling, like the the BS stuff, but a, an actual like uh, Greco-Roman wrestler guy. He was uh-huh. sort of the Michael Jordan of that. His name was Gene LaBelle. And after his wrestling, he became a stuntman. And so he would do a lot of these kind of movies. And uh, at lunch one day, there were a bunch of actors and stuff sitting around and the stuntmen were there. And uh, one of the actors says, hey, Gene, like what would happen if you and, you know, Stephen were to actually fight? And uh, he said, well, you know, I'd choke him out in less than a minute. And Steven Seagal was walking by and heard this. Now, Steven Seagal supposedly is this black belt Hapkido master, right? And thinks of himself as one of the best Hapkido guys in the world. And he's like, you know, you're out of your mind. I would kick your ass and blah, 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 blah. (laughs) And the next thing you know, like, he's like, we have to fight. And he's like, no, 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 I can't do that. And he's like, yeah, 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 yeah. We're going to fight right now, right? So Jean LaBelle, now Jean LaBelle is 60 years old at this point. Oh man. And uh, Jean, so Jean LaBelle and much shorter than Seagal, Jean LaBelle gets up, they begin the fight. And in like 30 seconds, he's knocked out (laughs) Seagal. He chokes him out. And uh, he was fired off the movie and never worked on another Seagal. Oh man. Yeah. Yeah. I guess you don't, uh, you know, you, you don't make the talent. Uh, you don't make the look star bad. look bad. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Any more Steven Seagal stories you have? No, that, no that, that's. Uh, <laughs> I'm drying what, that well. <laughs> what, what years were you uh, making? It was primarily direct-to-video uh, action movies. Yeah, yeah. Um, action martial arts. Um, yeah. I think my first movie was '88, and the last one was maybe. I don't know, 95 or something. And then I I moved over from, you know, what low-budget filmmaking teaches you really is you become ideally suited for television. And I moved over into television and uh, I got on a show. um, Actually, I think it's on Amazon Prime. It's called either LA Heat or LA Vice. I always get that confused. Uh And uh, uh, I did three episodes and it got canceled. And then I moved to a show on Animal Planet, and I did six episodes, and that show got canceled. And then all of a sudden, I hit a wall, and I couldn't find work anymore. And mm. uh, I eventually got sick and tired of of uh, calling people who never returned my calls. And I yeah. told all my friends in the film business, look, you know where to find me. I'm going back to gambling. If you need something, if you want me, call me. I'm happy to work, but... I'm not going to beat my head against the wall with people who won't return phone calls. Mm. Well, I am sure there are some films that you made that my dad rented because that was, that was our wheelhouse. My dad would rent because I have an older brother and we would watch, you know, like a action martial arts, uh, you know, he'd, he'd get the three for $5 or three for $3, you know, and and we would, yeah, yeah. Or, or, uh, the, the grocery store they would have these these good deals and that was my mom worked nights and we would just binge watch uh action action movies so yeah well back uh, then uh you know kickboxing was the big thing yes and uh so you know blood sport came out and kickboxer uh-huh. and um 
that was sort of the heyday and that's when I was doing it. And, and so, uh, yeah, I was, uh, making films with guys like Don, the dragon Wilson and Cynthia uh-huh. Rothrock. And, you know, so for martial arts people back then, they would know those names, but other people, uh-huh. yeah, probably not. <laughs> Well, I'm sure. I'm sure uh, we spent a, a Friday or Saturday night watching watching one of those movies. Uh, well, thank thanks so much for for doing this and you know going way over an hour. I mean, I don't have any sponsors, so you know I don't have to stick to any schedule. But but I really appreciate and respect your time. So thanks for doing this, and uh, people know where to hear more from you on Gambling with an Edge. Thanks so much. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm happy to do it. Awesome. Thank you. And uh, you guys can catch Richard on Gambling with an Edge. You can catch me uh, on this podcast or at Blackjack Apprenticeship. 